BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. We're the co-hosts of a podcast called A Thing or Two. It comes out every Monday and the basic premise is this. We share all the stuff we think more people should know about. So that's apps, recipes, books, the nationwide haagen vanilla bean shortage that nobody else was talking about. Our no perf- one. No one. <laughs> our preferred vacuum brands, of which we have multiples, and critical explorations of our unique approaches to paper towel usage. Listen, we think you're going to like it. A lot of people do. And who's to say you'll be any different? Listen and subscribe wherever it is you listen and subscribe to podcasts. everyone. Welcome back to the show. It's your host, Olivia Perez. I'm an interviewer, journalist, and the creator of Friend of a Friend, a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring but down-to-earth conversations with some of my favorite luminaries who are making good change. This week, we're welcoming on Yulene Liu, a New York Assemblywoman representing the 65th District in New York, encompassing lower Manhattan neighborhoods such as the Lower East Side, Chinatown, the Financial District, and Battery Park City. I'm sure quite a few of you listening right now are actually her constituents. Yulene is the first Asian-American woman to represent this district in the New York State's legislature and the first Asian-American assemblywoman in Manhattan. She's been elected twice into the assembly now, recently winning her re-election race by a landslide. Yulene has dedicated her work to advocacy and representation, specifically around financial empowerment, advocating for low-income families, immigrants, and communities of color. She's pushed to improve financial protections to secure funding for New York City public housing and has stood with tenants' rights advocates for better housing regulations. And on any given day, you can find her putting her cell phone in her constituents' phones or working on the ground to host food drives to accommodate the diverse needs of her district. To put it short, Yulene is a champion for her constituents, putting them and their needs first with a strong focus on life-changing policies over the politics. But today, she's in a battle to save her district for the pandemic and economic collapse along with xenophobia and racism have hit her area and its small businesses the hardest. In this episode, I sat down with Yulene to talk about the current landscape of downtown Manhattan, nine months into the coronavirus pandemic, the policy she's most passionate about passing right now, and how we can help lend a hand in the relief efforts for one of the hardest hit regions by COVID-19. Here's my friend, Assemblywoman Yulene New. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It really means the world to me to have your time. So glad to do it. So glad I could be here today. And I'm so glad I could be part of your podcast. It's very exciting. Thank you. So how are you today? I always like to ask my guests what's on their mind today. And 
especially we're about to go up to Thanksgiving week. So how are you feeling today? It's been a little rough. You know, the numbers going back up in New York have made it a little bit difficult to even think about trying to, you know, do some kind of celebration or anything. You know, we had to cancel any kind of Thanksgiving plans or anything like that. Uh, we, we already didn't see family, et cetera. But, you know, it's just been really tough. I think that it's been tough for a lot of New Yorkers. It's been tough for folks to kind of have to navigate a lot of the scenarios right now. People are having a hard time making ends meet. You know, it's hard to pay rent. It's been hard for us to pay rent, my partner and I. It's been hard to make ends meet, put food on the table, the whole nine yards. So I think that a lot of people are going through that right now here in our state, in our city. So we've been doing a lot of, you know, food. We've been doing a lot of meal programs and things like that. But those are just Band-Aid solutions when what we really need is to make sure that we have good recovery policy. Where are you calling in from right now? So I'm here in New York. I'm in my district, which is where I live, (laughs) obviously. So um, my district is actually lower Manhattan. So when you look at the whole entire, you know, map of Manhattan, it's just the tip of it. And uh, it was Hamilton's district. So that's probably the most famous assessor. Al Smith was also a former governor and uh, the person who used to hold the seat. And it's encompassing, you know, some of the most iconic, I guess, one would say, when they think of New York, they think of probably my district, you know, Statue of Liberty, like when, when you're looking at, you know, the seaport, when you're looking at Chinatown and Little Italy, and you're thinking, you know, Godfather or um, any of those movies. Like, it's always it's always my district. So you got a lot of weight on your shoulders over there. Like the world's the world's watching that area. I feel like where I'm sitting right now actually is just two doors down from the Francis Tavern. So a lot of like history buffs probably know about the Francis Tavern. The Francis Tavern was literally where George Washington and the Culper Spies got together and started the American Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't know that. That's really cool. Where is that? So it is right on uh, Broad and Water. Oh, cool. Yeah. So like that whole little area, that one block is uh, like these little historic houses and little walk ups. And I live in one of them. That's amazing. You know, I lived in New York for nine years. I was on Mulberry Street for four of them oh and God. like didn't know that at all. Yeah. You were constituents. I was. I know for a long time. It was definitely like the highlight of my time in New York for sure was living over there. And I had so many friends that lived there. And it was actually, I think just was so nice to live in that area was just seeing the different businesses and different communities that would come together within those tiny streets. I think it's like, Uh that is like the magic of that area that I think you really don't get in a lot of other places. But so let's scroll back as far as we possibly can. You were born in Taiwan. You moved to the United States when you were about six months old, if I have that correct. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like moving to the United States as a really young kid? I mean, I have no idea. (laughs) I was six months old. My parents came to the U.S. when they were like in their late 20s. So they were like 28, 20. I I, I can't even think of that because like I'm obviously I'm like I'm like in my 30s now. And I was I I could not possibly imagine going to a whole new country (laughs) without knowing that you could survive it. They both thought that they were going to be able to be students. And of course, like one of them couldn't be. They had to be the breadwinner. So my dad went to school. My mom is a nurse. And so she worked and was like kind of like sole breadwinner with my dad's scholarship and the um, housing that, you know, his his school provided. But yeah, my parents decided to, (laughs) they were, they were silly. They like, I don't know. I don't know how they did it, but they were like, let me pick the most racist place on earth and like put our 
little family, a little immigrant family there. They chose Moscow, Idaho. So um, that was interesting. Yeah, I was six months old. My parents had six suitcases, $1,000 in their pocket, and the six-month-old baby where they didn't even know how to buy diapers or formula. And they came to this country. And they were just like, great. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that it was probably a little bit tough for them, I would say. probably. Understand. Totally. I can, I can definitely see. I could definitely imagine that. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, how, how, why did you live in so many different places? And I was just like, well, you know, immigrant family, economic opportunity with like educational opportunity. And so like my parents really kind of just decided things based off of my father's schooling and education. And so, you know, my dad, you know, he, he was then in uh, the Oregon Graduate Institute. So I think he moved, we all moved to Oregon, to, to Beaverton, Oregon, when I was very young. Um, my little brother was actually born there. My sister was born in Moscow, Idaho. She was only a year and a half younger than me. And so then my brother was born. And so that, you know, we, we kind of grew up a little bit everywhere. In the middle of my first grade class, I moved to El Paso, Texas, where I lived for seven years, you know, of my life, very formative years. It's amazing to hear. So you went from Idaho to Oregon to Texas, Texas, and then back to Washington. Uh huh. I can imagine that being really challenging for an immigrant family, specifically an Asian American family, where I feel like those areas are not very like the sense of community isn't there <laughs> at all. Not a lot of Asian Americans, or like you know, I mean, when I moved to El Paso, my parents checked the uh, bilingual box because obviously I'm bilingual, speak two languages, but they put me in Spanish and English class because they didn't think that there was <laughs> there was another language out there <laughs> in the world because it's a it's, El Paso is a border town, you know? And so, yeah, I like bilingual kid was Spanish and English speaking, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so fun to hear you reflect on that in such <laughs> a fun way of like, it just was the reality of it. And I think I'm sure it came with its own challenges, but it must have been really rewarding to experience all that as a family. Yeah. I mean, I think that as a kid, I, I think I never, I saw things in, in a different lens than my parents did. Obviously, I'm sure that they were like, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of money. Like we're here. Like I still remember my parents slept in separated. Like, so they had bought one set of bunk beds and they slept on like, they were separated. And so they slept on one twin size mattress, like the two of them. And then my sister and I slept side by side. And then when we got too big, we slept, you know, foot to head. And like, I just remember thinking like, looking back, I was like, how on earth, you know, but, but my parents were just, really amazing scrappy like awesome people who fought really hard to provide for their kids and we never felt like we wanted for anything and so I think like that was something that now when I recall you know they were so hardcore and awesome you know like pretty brave you know and I I never um saw it as a kid but like now looking back it's it's like very obvious that they they fought very hard as a kid, I feel like my sense of home and, and kind of waking up in the same place every day and doing that routine was a big part of informing my identity. So I wonder if being an Asian American and then moving to all these different places, was there a moment where you did come to terms with your identity and feel like, and really almost accepted in a way? I think especially for people of color, I think for um, immigrant kids, I think that there's always, you know, a particular othering that is is happened like it's always happening to them um and i think especially as an asian american kid you know there's this perpetual foreigner syndrome that also 
you know, kicks in, right? Um, people, it doesn't matter how long you're here, it doesn't matter, you know, how perfect your English is, quote unquote, you know, um, these are things that, you know, people, when they see my face, they'll still think like, you know, they'll still say things like go back to where you come from, go, you know, like this isn't your home. And so the concept of home is uh, a tough one for most immigrants, right? Because a lot of times, you know, it doesn't matter how, how much you care or how much you love your country and the one that you're in and like the, the one you chose, right? And like, that's another thing. It's like, you know, people don't realize how, how much immigrants can love America because it's the country we chose. And I think that that is something, it's not like, oh, you know, I just happened to be here. It's like, I chose here, right. you know? And I think that that's a, that's a whole new level of like love and care and like dedication and loyalty, you know? And I think that a lot of times it hurts, especially when somebody tells you like to go back to where you come from. You're like, where do I come from? Like El Paso, like, <laughs> like Seattle, like which, which place, you know? And, right, it's um, the unfortunate I, burden of stereotypes. Yeah. And I think, you know, even when I visited family in Asia, you know, it's like, they're like, oh, you're American. And then over here, they're like, oh, you're Asian, you're Chinese, you know, and, or like, you know, you're Taiwanese or like whatever. They, they will say something, they'll like label you, you know. And, you know, when I was a kid, I definitely, you know, had a moment when I told my mom, and this is something that still like breaks me a little bit. And also I, I saw it in her face that it was something that hurt her so much. But um, I still remember running home to her. I think this is the first or second grade. And I remember running home to her and just being like, mom, I, I hate you for making me Chinese. And, um, and when I said that, you know, it's not, it wasn't like, like she could choose <laughs> for me right. to be any ethnicity she wanted me to be. Right. But, you know, I think that for her, it was the first time that she realized that she couldn't protect me from everything. What's your sense of home now? Um, obviously New York, you know, like, I mean, I have to say, wanted to hear it, honestly, <laughs> you know, no, so, so yeah, no, just, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's very interesting. So my, my, it, it, it's like, how far are we different from our parents? We're not that different from our parents. Right. My mom and my dad like came to the U S for educational opportunities. I came to New York for my own educational opportunities. You know, I, I came for my master's degree and I like never felt this way before but this is a city that's home for so many people because because of the, di- the diversity that it has the uh the history that it has for all of us you know regardless of when you came <laughs> and I think that it's like yeah it's just it's uh, it's it's awesome in that way you know and there's a there, place for everybody yeah there's something about New York that makes it so that there is a place for everyone and there's something about New York that makes it so that, you know, certain, you know, communities are just home. And, uh, you know, I found it here. While you were moving around as a kid, what was the moment, if there was one, that you felt like you were interested in politics? So, yeah, when I was a kid, I, I actually thought I, I wanted to be a lawyer <laughs> because uh, I oftentimes saw, you know, little injustices that would happen to my parents or to friends and family or moments where I felt like, wow, if I had the knowledge, if I had the ability to speak up and change this outcome, you know, my mom was in a car accident once. And I, uh, I remember, you know, the guy we were in her in the school zone while he was speeding in a school zone and she was turning and like he rear ended her 
and it should be an open and shut case. But because, you know, his English was faster than hers and she couldn't explain herself quickly enough and all these things, like they've deemed her partially negligent. And so like that, it was just like little things like that. It just, it just added up. And I was just like, wow, like that's so unfair, you know? And I just remember thinking, well, if I was a lawyer, I could fight for folks. And then I realized that actually it's not just like being a lawyer, you just end up defending the law as it exists. And there are so many laws that are written to systemically hurt particular people and benefit others. And I think that, you know, we really got to see that we need to change those laws, right? I think that it's very apparent that systemically racism is built into our government. Racism and and, and sexism and you know, economic disparity is literally built in and written into our government systems. And so we need to write them out. And so we need to dismantle them. And so I started to have an interest in, you know, just kind of understanding how things worked in the government. I was like, I have to figure out the big secret. I have to (laughs) figure out like the big secret of how government works. And so I went and took on an internship at 17 at the Washington State Legislature. This is when I was actually a student uh, in Olympia at the Evergreen State College, go Gooey Ducks. It's a real mascot. And there's a fight song. I'll sing it for you one day. But uh, <laughs> it's a horrifying fight song. It's a great, okay. a great one. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I love that school too. But uh, yeah, I, I, it, I knew that I wanted to take on this legislative internship because I wanted to see a bird's eye view, how the legislature worked. I wanted to see what the big secret was and how to access government. And then when I got there, I realized there is no big secret, that there, there were people who were already in power that just didn't want everybody else to know. There is no big secret to accessing government that you can just participate and you can vote and you can, you know, petition and you can get on the ballot and you can run and do all these things. And, and, I, and I felt like it was my mission to really kind of let people know that there's no big secret and that anybody can access government. While you were there especially as a young person, was there something in specific that you were really excited to help solve the most? Poverty. <laughs> I know it's a big one, <laughs> but yeah. I'm, I'm, Gotta start somewhere. I'm, yeah, I've always been a huge anti-poverty advocate. I think that economic justice is interconnected with everything else, right? When you're talking about environmental justice, when you're talking about uh, racial justice, when you're talking about racism or sexism, you know, you have to talk about the fact that you know, a lot of the impacts are made through uh, economic injustices and through poverty. Um, Impoverishing somebody can keep down a whole entire community and, you know, certain things that they are saying are not racist and are, you know, colorblind, quote unquote, which is not a real thing. I think that, you know, we see, you know, our banking systems, it's redlining. There's redlining built in when you're talking about certain kind of lending programs, you know, there's predatory practices built in and those are only used on our communities, you know? And so I think that it's really important that we're talking about, you know, how to um, alleviate poverty. Martin Luther King says it's a man-made thing, so we can obviously change it as well. After you had that position, you moved to New York. That's like a big daunting step that I feel like is scary in retrospect. But I'd love to hear a little bit about what that period of your life was like in finding such an obviously distinctive passion in Washington, wanting to bring that over to New York and then kind of getting your foot in the door in that. 
you know, by the time I came to New York, I had already had almost 10 years of legislative experience. And so I had just finished my master's and was bartending at Winnie's in Chinatown. And no way. Uh, yeah, having the time of my life, you know. <laughs> and so 100%. Yeah, it was a good time. And I felt like, you know, I was also doing a little bit of, you know, I, I did some consulting work and I was just really happy. You know, I just think that, you know, for me, it was just a really you know, happy time, but also, you know, a very poor time. But <laughs> I was just like, you know, this is, this is New York to its like nth degree, you know, you get to totally. see everything, all the people, all the best things about it. And I really wanted to experience that. And, and I, and I knew that, you know, like what I've always cared about was obviously to work on policy. And I, and I had applied for a couple of different policy director positions, advocacy positions. During that time, I met uh, a person. His name was Ron Kim. <laughs> he uh, is a current sitting assembly member out in Flushing, Queens. And uh, he was also an alumni of the same graduate program that I went through. And so we met through, you know, the graduate programs alumni network. He kind of like chased me down uh, at an event that I was at. I was just like, hey, I know that you have a lot of legislative experience. I'm thinking about running for office. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, you go for that. And he was like, yeah, I'm looking for a campaign manager. And I was like, no, <laughs> because you should probably, you know, hire somebody who, who knows your area and can help you to the maximum, but I'll help you and like, see what's up. But I didn't realize at the time that, you know, we were about to make history because he's, he was the first Korean American to ever win office anywhere in New York state. And you know, he was going to also become, you know, the only Asian American in the state legislature when he took that seat, because the person who was in that seat was also the only Asian American <laughs> legislator in that seat, which was Grace May. So, you know, it was just like one Asian American seat in the entire New York state legislature. And, you know, that's when I saw that there was such a huge need. And so when he asked me to be his chief of staff, you know, I, I agreed to it. I made much more money as a bartender, but uh, <laughs> it was it was worth it because, you know, I think that having a legislator who was the only Asian American legislator in the entire state legislature and having a voice in the government uh, for Asian Americans who made up over 13 percent of our state's population and yet had not even one percent of its representation was so important. Right. And so um, I worked for him for many years. And I think that it was really important work. What was the moment you knew you were ready to run? Um, I think that a lot of times women <laughs> have this like internalized oppression, this thing that we say to ourselves and we we're never uh, think that we're ready, really. And I think that that's, you know, to the detriment of everybody. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, it, it took me a long time to kind of even come to terms with like, taking on this challenge and I just remember like, having a panic attack every time I was like thinking about it too much but you know I I was actually approached by uh, at the time the current sitting uh, state senator at the time in this area who was uh, Daniel Squadron somebody I really looked up to and or look up to still and somebody who really uh, was a awesome progressive fighter and so I yeah I, I thought that he was great and when he asked me, I was just like, what? Because he, he was just like, yeah, you live in the area and you should, you know, think about it. And I was just like, I don't know about that. But, you know, Ron was somebody who just sat me down and just asked me, like, do you think that 
you know anybody else could do this better than you and he just he's he's always like always been uh very encouraging too and just always said i mean he still says it which i don't believe it but i think that he says it all the time which is you know he's like oh you would make a better legislator than me you know and i was like that's not true because he's obviously one of my favorite legislators and he's like one of the best and so it's very encouraging to hear and and so you know i i i just decided to take the leap when i realized that you know this seat has never had an asian american representative um and i realized like you know like i i i knew that because um this seat was occupied by the former speaker that there would be a huge uh, resource bleed from the area and you know, I had a lot of legislative experience and I knew how the budget worked and I knew how bills worked and I knew how to staunch that bleed. So I figured, you know, I would help to, to make that transition smooth. For people who are listening right now and may not know the ins and outs of what an assembly member does, could you kind of walk us through what your day-to-day is, what issues you're faced with solving on the daily? Yeah, so I mean, day-to-day is different pre-COVID and now. Um, Let's talk yeah. about now. Yeah. So yeah. now, obviously, it's been it's been a little bit tough. Um, you know, a, a legislator is supposed to be working on legislation. A legislator is supposed to be making sure that we have, you know, a budget that reflects our values and is able to write legislation that helps to, you know, solve a lot of the problems that we see throughout our state. So a lot of times my legislation, in fact, every single piece of my legislation is inspired by something that happened in my district or to a, a constituent of mine or is like a, a solution to a problem that is multi-layered that a lot of people are experiencing throughout the district. And so uh, I try to base all of my answers uh, on the problems that we're seeing, right? So they're very hands-on solutions. For example, you know, a lot of my constituents had received predatory robocalls. And so, you know, we have been working on a bill to basically ban robocalls. And so my district had been preyed on so heavily that just in like one year, um, you know, seniors and folks who, you know, were immigrant, uh, you know, families, et cetera, working people, they had been preyed on by these robocalls and had lost almost $4 million, you know? And so when you think of that and you think about the, um, yeah, when you think about the socioeconomics of my district, that's so much money and so many scams and, and, and probably, you know, bankrupted a lot of people, you know? And I think that, you know, it, it's really, you know, it might seem like a small thing, but it's something that is huge for the district, you know? And so uh, hand in hand, I also sponsored a bill that stopped unfair, deceptive, abusive, and predatory practices. And that's a bill that I'm working on with the attorney general's office that uh, almost passed last year uh, or the year before that, actually. But um, it, it's like one of those bills that, you know, is really crucial uh, to basically stop predatory practices. And so, you know, these are all things that we like, kind of learned along the way and uh, I, I think that it's really just critical to make sure that you're listening to your community, you know, but yeah, so day to day, like that's what we should be doing. We should be working on just the legislation, et cetera, pushing on those things and then helping our constituents casework. And then every time there's like a case of some kind of thing where somebody was preyed on, et cetera, we would, 
um, help to kind of fix this this case or try to let them know which resources to go to or you know when people came in with any issues on like oh I couldn't fill out for my SNAP benefits or I, I can't get my senior metro card or whatever like we we've been able to help out with all those things but now the district has different needs because everybody has such big needs in the basic needs area we ended up having to really kind of become like food pantry and a distribution center for PPEs and, you know, all of these different things. I had to like, you know, get and source on my own tons of PPE masks and hand sanitizer, et cetera, for my district because um, we just weren't provided any, you know, we weren't provided that much. We were provided like 20,000 masks from the city, which was, you know, very few, right? Um, it went like that. And then um, like 200 gallons of uh, hand sanitizer from the governor's office, which also went like that. So I think that, you know, those are things that we just needed to get ourselves for everyone. And so we're still, you know, people are super generous. Um, my own family has kicked in donations and like, you know, friends and neighbors, et cetera. It's like, well, the government hasn't done the things that it needs, it's needed to, but our neighbors have done phenomenal. And it's like, you know, just the day to day has changed a lot. From a U.S. perspective, obviously New York was one of the places hit the hardest. But when you zoom in on that, your constituents and your area really took the hardest hit from the perspective of racism and xenophobia in Chinatown to even just what we were saying earlier, that being a, a place where community thrives on small businesses. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are we, eight, nine months out of having been in this? What the landscape is right now? Yeah, so starting in about January, end of January, beginning of February, we started to see that there was a lot of racism. This is before there was a single case diagnosed in New York. It was very difficult because people were starting to say very racist and uh, horrible things. You know, you saw online, like people were posting things that were talking about how like, Asian food's dirty and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is not new stuff. This is like, you know, people say these kinds of things and that's just why there's the stereotype, this othering and this like exoticizing and um, and also, you know, making things like, you know, it seems like we're, we're dirty or gross or somehow lesser than. And, you know, we started to see that a lot online. We started to see a lot of people posting these kinds of things, um, spraying people down in the subway uh, with, like cleaning chemicals, you know, punching somebody in the face for wearing a mask, punching somebody in the face for not wearing a mask, you know, setting people on fire or, you know, throwing a senior into train tracks. Um, it, it's been, it's been a lot. And um, the economic devastation in my area has been, has been really heartbreaking because you start to see more and more restaurants shutting down. And I've gotten letters from store owners just you know they said that they didn't have any other way of saying goodbye and so they wrote me a letter so it's it's you know generations of work that um went up in smoke just like that and so i think you know our our constituents our district here are really resilient and strong and you see you know some of the folks who came up and did a lot of the food delivery and all of those things. But at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that so many businesses needed help and our government wasn't willing to give it. I raised it to our leadership. I raised it to the governor. 
and you know they weren't able to give any help to help to provide more runway and so our communities especially in the different ethnic enclaves definitely had less of a runway when everything started to shut down um, they already used it up and so when things shut down they didn't have any kind of leeway for for that shutdown uh, like other restaurants and other small businesses around the city and um, and so they had a harder time and that's why many of them have already said that they cannot reopen because the cost of reopening, the cost of getting inventory again, the cost of, you know, getting um, employees back, et cetera, then to let them go again was painful. And so, you know, it's a cycle that starts a lot of dominoes, right? Uh, you know, the, the small businesses in our area are also the people, the, the businesses that employ the people in our area. And so then you start seeing that devastation and then you start seeing that, you know, people are having a harder time paying rent. Um, people are getting evicted. People are, you know, losing their businesses, losing their livelihoods. And then on top of that, and they can't make ends meet, they might become homeless. And the cycle... It's domino effect, yeah. Yeah. If there's one thing that you can call on the governor to do right now, what would it be? Rent forgiveness. Yeah, rent forgiveness and uh, to fully fund our public housing. I think that those are two things that are really important because right now housing is healthcare and we need people to stay home. And if we're asking people to stay home, then we need to pay them to do it and also um, make sure that they can have a home to stay in. In the next couple months, well, especially now, we're pretty much in winter almost. With the winter months coming, what do you think we can expect to see or even maybe prepare for? Well, we're going to see a lot more of our outdoor dining closing down, right? Because it's going to be colder and colder and it's not going to be um, sustainable, right? So then more and more small uh, restaurants and things are going to have to only shift to delivery or um, close down completely. I think I'm really worried about that. Um, there's a lot of things that are going to happen uh, then economically that we're going to see um, as, you know, as you see the domino effect is continuous, right? Um, it's like layer by layer by layer. And um, I think that we need to implement a, uh, a way to be able to raise revenue for the state. And then we need to make sure that we're able to um, invest in our infrastructure, you know, and that's the only way that we're going to be able to stop um, or to provide a stopgap for any of these domino effects that we're seeing. But I don't, I, I don't see um, that happening unless there's political will to do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to push it, but I think that we need to make sure that there's the political will of people, you know, and I think that we've, we've uh, proven that we care about, you know, making sure that we have uh, people fighting for these things instead of like the, the more austerity budgeting that, you know, federally and statewide and citywide that people have been doing. I think that everybody needs to know, like, actually, you know, the Great Depression, FDR, like all these things have, you know, proven that we can't cut our way to recovery like there's just no way there's no way we um, can't cut our way out of a recession there's no way and so we need to make sure that we're investing in the things that we should have been investing in all along right if we had invested in public housing then our public housing would not be in the state that it's in and we would not have to be you know 
providing all these different ways to like make sure oh, like every summer every winter like we have like oh this issue and that issue like there's a mold issue in the summer there's a heating issue in the winter and like it's always the same constant right so like we wouldn't have these constant issues and then and then we wouldn't have had the kind of spread that we had within public housing right like we needed to um, make sure that people could stay in their homes and if their homes are making them sick um, they can't stay in their homes right and so we need to have that investment now you know we we keep on messing things up even our food program it's like even when people are like patting themselves on the back saying like wow we provide all these different meals like well actually we should have been smarter about it because you know the food programming in the city has been basically it's difta which makes it so that you know it's like they, they've been contracting to these different companies these corporations that like put together these meals and they're like both applesauce and cereal and cookies and milk right and like different things and and you're just like if you're a senior if you're diabetic how could you eat that it's not you know stuff that's like thoughtful right i mean yeah sure it's free meal and like people can you know get it and anybody can have it and they were like so proud that anybody could grab a free meal but it wasn't answering the questions that needed to be answered within our communities you know if you're a constituent in your district or even just somebody that lives in new york right now what can we be doing to help your district recover from the past nine months? I think fight for the legislation that will help us to get revenue, right? I think that, you know, we should fight for economic justice, right? We should be fighting for budget justice. You know, we should be making sure that there's uh, equitable taxation when it comes to the wealthy paying their fair share. Multimillionaires and billionaires are getting richer through this pandemic. We should make sure that we're taxing them appropriately. It's ridiculous. And when we seem like, oh, somebody paid $750 in taxes, like I pay more than that, you know? And so it's just like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very um, simple thing. Like all we have to do is just make sure that we have equitable um, taxation, fair taxation, and make it so that we, we do the basics, right? Like New Jersey already did it. They legalized marijuana. They made sure that, you know, we, they have a multimillionaire's tax. They, you know, have different things that, you know, we should have passed already because, you know, now guess what? That ta those tax dollars are going to go to New Jersey. Like we should have been doing it already. These are the things that we need to do to make sure that the people who are the most impacted by this are not impacted by our, our need for revenue. And, you know, we, we've always raised revenue off of the backs of the working poor. Like what we need to be doing is to make sure that we're raising revenue through the wealthy right now, because they're literally becoming bigger billionaires as we speak. I know that everything we've been talking about has been not a bright spot in what we've been dealing with in the past year, but you did just win re-election. So I do want to congratulate you on that. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And by a landslide. So we love to see that. And I also just am really as sad and upsetting as it is to hear everything that you've just shared with us. I also do really feel really hopeful that that district has you as representative who's paying attention to everything and not just in the game for the politics but really to help with the policy so that's a bright spot what are you looking forward to if that is the right sentiment in this re-election i actually think that this next year will be one that we should all be looking forward to which is a year of recovery you know i think that we need to be looking towards making sure that folks are pri like as a progressive you know progressive dem i've been saying probably the same things over and over and over again right medicare for all housing justice like all these different things that would like help to make sure that our systems are like really kind of dismantling the racism within it 
closing the racial wealth gap, trying to make sure that things are a little bit more equitable across the board for everyone. But I think that we've seen like with the light that COVID has shined on everything that our systems are, they're just not feasible. They're so individualized, right? Like every single thing, it thinks that, you know, oh, well, I'm okay. So therefore I shouldn't care about everything. But in actuality, like we have just realized, and I think that this has shown that we've always been interconnected. We are so connected at every single level. Your healthcare depends on my healthcare. My healthcare depends on your healthcare. If you're healthy, then I can stay healthy. If I'm not healthy, you might not be healthy. And so like all of these things like have shown that we're so interconnected, we have to watch out for one another. We have to, and we have to make sure that we have better healthcare, that we have better housing, that we have like, you know, a way for people to get to work, that we have education for our children that is going to be able to like actually you know, be real education. I think that it's, 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 it's really now more obvious than ever the inequities that are in our society right now. And so, you know, let's change it. You know, it's visible. It's all there. A big black light on all the gross things that have been going on for ever and ever. Right. And uh, now is the time for us to change up everything. If we, if we take the opportunity, we can. There was something so interesting that you said earlier where you were trying to figure out what the big secret was. Like, what's the big secret of politics? And I want to know what what practice is near and dear to you in helping break down that concept to young people who also want to get involved in politics. A lot of times people don't think that they can be leaders. Right. And I think that that's one of the biggest things. And I and I was really lucky to have a lot of really amazing mentors and one of my mentors, he told me that you can be a leader from anywhere and you don't need a title. <laughs> you don't need even like a pencil. You don't even, you don't need a big office. You don't need a desk. You don't even need a pencil. You don't, you, you don't need anything. All you need is to be willing. And so if you want to make a change, you can, you're already doing it just by wanting it. And I think that, you know, I think that that's, probably my biggest advice is that, you know, literally you can touch it if you want to touch it. And, and, you know, Barack Obama said it in like a very quick way, which is, you know, if you want to make change, like grab a clipboard, you know, get some signatures and run. Right. But I think that, you know, I also was somebody who worked on the background for a really, really long time as staff. And I still think it's one of the most important things I've ever, 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 ever done. And I, and oftentimes I think I made more change as a staffer, as an advocate than I even did as a member so far. You know, and I think that, you know, we can make change from all different areas and it's okay to be any kind of leader that you are, right? There are people who are charismatic leaders. There are people who are great at making speeches. There are people who are just incredible managers of other people. And then there's also people like me who are just more like servants, right? I'm a servant leader from like the core. And I think that, you know, for me, it's always been service in love and service in um, making sure that folks have what they need, right? And I think that that's just my way of leadership. And I didn't used to think that it was leadership because I thought that always like leaders had to speak from above or speak from in front. And I'm always somebody who pushes from behind. So I think that it's okay. And any kind of leadership is leadership. And it's also awesome. And um, sometimes it's leadership that's needed. So I, I think that I want to encourage everyone to know that, you know, they can be leaders and, and in any style, in any form. 
I love that you're saying that you push from the back or like speak from the back. I feel like you speak from the heart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> of course, if there's anything that we listeners, me, that we can do, like, please always reach out or like we are so here to support and especially knowing that the next year ahead is really going to be focused on recovery. We are we are totally here to help in any way. Yeah, I mean, I, I so two things. A lot of times I am here to like, I will tell you that we spend all of our campaign dollars on trying to help the district do stuff, right? So, so if people want to, they should donate to, you know, my campaign. It's on the, our website, um, New for New York or Union New for New York. And then we also have uh, an amazing small business that has been feeding everyone. I posted about it before, um, but 46 Mott Street, there's an amazing young person. His name is Patrick Mott. And he and I, I have known him since he was 16 years old. And when I asked him for help to make sure that we can provide hot meals, nutritious meals, because the city's program wasn't helping to help a particular population of folks, um, I, I asked him, I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, if I could get some donations for you, would you be willing to make sure that we have these hot meals for folks? And he said yes. And he made it so it was like about $3 a meal. Um, so if you folks want to donate to 46 Mott, he has a Venmo. And so, you know, reach out to me on Twitter, in my DMs, whatever. It's at Y-U-H-L-I-N-E. And, you know, feel free to follow, feel free to help out. But, you know, it really does make a difference because every single day we're still feeding so many people. Thank you, guys. I will link all of this in the description of this episode so you can find it easily. Thank you. Thank you so much again for coming on. I appreciate you. And I hope you're, you stay well and you have at least a moment of being able to Take some time for yourself this week, whether that's celebrating or eating a meal that you like, just taking some time to take care of you this week. Oh, thank you. I'm like the worst at self-care, so you can teach me your ways. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a lifelong lesson. I think everybody is is working on it. But I think now we talked about this on last week's episode. It's important to find ways to like find like what your radical self-care is. And like that could be in any way. I even responded and I was like, oh, I think mine is like wearing really bright colors and like crazy outfits every day because it makes me feel fun. But like, even if it's just finding like a little thing that makes you happy. So I guess one thing that I have been doing that has been really awesome is I had, so to hashtag save the USPS, I actually asked for some pen pals and like people are writing and like, oh my God, she's showing me a full stack of envelopes right now. It's like, it's awesome. Are these all constituents or people around the world? People around the world. And so um, somebody in Tel Aviv, there's somebody um, in Australia, New Zealand, and then there's another person who's like in like Japan, like it's it's amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, I I love, you know, being able to write different people, but it's really awesome to, to, to read what other people write. So, yeah. So I think that that has been really good help. I will say that. Yeah, that's like a beautiful <laughs> sense of community. I, I'm really happy to hear that you have that. That's amazing. Well, I recommend it. And it also helps the USPS. It does. <laughs> it does. Very important pen pals. It's so awesome. Thank you so much again. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.